There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to Past, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune and this week's episode is Thomas of Woodstock. Welcome to the last episode about the sons of Edward III within this series. I hope you enjoyed my collaborative episode about Philippa of Lancaster. Please make sure to check out Cork Out History for the second half if you haven't already. And thank you yet again, both Andre and Inej, for that. I had a great time working with you. Let's get on to Thomas's episode. As many of you may have guessed from my earlier episodes, this one does not have a happy ending at least not for Thomas, and it is his story after all. With each of his older brothers, I felt like I was counting down to something within the story. 1356 and the Battle of Poitiers for the Black Prince. 1368 and his passing for Lionel of Antwerp. 1399, oddly, and even though it's after his death, his son's usurpation for John of Gaunt. And again, 1399 and his choosing of sides for Edmund of Langley. But for Thomas, I feel like there really isn't a countdown. Yes, he has a huge impact on history, but he doesn't really get the same attention his brothers do. None of his children will be major candidates in the Wars of the Roses, though they will have an impact. His nephew, Henry Bolingbroke, gets more of the attention with relation to the rumblings against Richard II's tyranny. His father seems to have forgotten to ennoble him, though he did manage to knight him. In the same ceremony where Edward III knighted Richard of Bordeaux and Henry Bolingbroke, along with Thomas's illegitimate half-brother, John de Southeray. Despite this, he would marry well, and his political decisions would set the stage for the political struggles that England experienced over the next century. For the subject, I will, much like all of his older brothers, be using John of Gaunt's two most recent biographies. John of Gaunt by Catherine Warner, and The Red Prince by Helen Carr. I am also using the book The Loyal Conspiracy by Anthony Goodman, a book with both an impressive title and a detailed history of all of the appellants and part of the political situation which gave rise to their somewhat treasonous appeal. Thomas of Woodstock was born on the 7th of January, 1355, in, not surprisingly, Woodstock Palace and was the youngest child of Edward III and Philippa of Hainaut. While I'm sure his birth wasn't a surprise, as in Philippa would have known she was pregnant, having a child at between 40 and 45 was rather uncommon in the 14th century. 
While it's more common now for pregnancies at that age, it usually comes with recommendations of additional medical care and assistance. Doing so in the 14th century sounds terrifying. Thomas's closest surviving sibling in age was his sister Margaret of Windsor, who was born in July of 1346, making her eight and a half years older than her baby brother. Edmund of Langley, the brother he was closest to in age, was 14 and a half years older than him. His oldest brother, the Black Prince, actually had an illegitimate son, Roger Clarendon, who was at least two years older than Thomas. What I'm trying to emphasize is that Thomas was not just the baby of the family. He was in a different generation than almost all of his siblings, but especially all of his brothers. It means he didn't get to grow up with any of them. He wouldn't have had the same loyalty to the Black Prince as his older brothers. He would have spent almost no time with Lionel of Antwerp, who was in Ireland for most of Thomas's life, before dying when Thomas was only 13. His mother, Philippa of Hainaut, would die a year later, when Thomas was 14. The difference between his upbringing and that of his brothers would have been stark. Unlike Lionel and Edmund, I can't just reread John's biography to find out what his childhood was like. It appears that while Edward III forgot to ennoble his youngest child, he did decide to marry him well. In 1374, when he was 19, Thomas married Eleanor de Bowen, who was 13. Don't worry, their marriage wouldn't be consummated for a few years, thankfully. This marriage was lucky for Thomas, as we saw with his older brothers, John of Gaunt and Edmund of Langley. Who one married could have a great impact on one's ability to garner influence. Marrying a wealthy heiress is the easiest way for a king to advance one son at no cost to his oldest son and heir. Unlike Langley, Thomas married wealthy. Oddly, his marriage looked similar to Gaunt's first marriage. His wife, Eleanor, was the older daughter of a wealthy landholder, Humphrey de Bowen, the seventh Earl of Hereford, who had no sons. Eleanor had one younger sister, Mary. Thomas and Eleanor seemed to be hoping she would join a religious order. Had Mary done that, the entire non-entailed de Bowen inheritance would have gone to Eleanor. But Mary did not choose to join a religious order. Spoilers! Instead, in 1380, while Thomas was out of the country, Mary was married to Henry Bolingbroke. This was one of the many things that would drive a wedge between Thomas and Gaunt. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Just know that unlike Langley, Thomas received a great deal of wealth through his wife, though not as much as Gaunt received through his first wife, partially thanks to Gaunt's own machinations. Obviously, between his marriage and the marriage of his younger sister-in-law, something big happened in Thomas's life. In 1377, not long after he was knighted, his father, Edward III, passed away at the age of 64. Thomas was 22. His father had arranged a great marriage for him, but didn't seem to do much else. I imagine it would have been painful not to have been ennobled when his young nephew, Richard of Bordeaux, had been given all of the Black Prince's titles, and his other young nephew, Henry Bolingbroke, was able to use the courtesy titles that belonged to John of Gaunt. With his father's death, Richard of Bordeaux became Richard II, and Thomas was still Prince Thomas? or Sir Thomas, son of the late king. Luckily for Thomas, his nephew seemed to have been advised that ennobling his uncle 
would be a good idea. Thomas was created the Earl of Buckingham later in 1377. Thomas would travel to the continent in 1380 in an attempt to assist John of Gaunt in Brittany. But because the channel was a bit of a mess with all the various factions involved, he and his 5,000 plus men were ferried through Calais instead of going directly to Brittany. He would march towards Paris with his men, only to be met by Philip the Bold, Duke of Burgundy. Again, I will not get distracted by the illustrious Burgundians. I will not get distracted by the illustrious Burgundians. <laughs> As you'll remember from Gaunt and Langley's episodes, the French were doing what they could to avoid pitched battles, and the Burgundians were following the same rules. They were French, after all. Due to this avoidance, Thomas was able to go on his own little chevouchet. He was also helped by the death of Charles V in September of 1380. Much like Richard II becoming king at only 10, Charles V was succeeded by his 12-year-old son, Charles VI. This hurt French defensive plans. Thomas laid siege to Nantes in November of that year, but was unable to break the city or hold position, and reinforcements were not sent from England. Plus that whole dysentery thing that seemed to hit every army during a siege throughout, well, all of history. He also had no reason to continue to Brittany, due to the duchy reaching an agreement with the new French king. He returned to England in early 1381. Upon his return, he found out that his sister-in-law Mary had been married to Henry Bolingbroke, as I discussed earlier. A few of you may already know this, but this marriage will have a huge impact on English and French history, and even a bit on Swedish, Norwegian, and Danish history. Thomas, though, was not worried about either his nephew or sister-in-law's happiness, nor history. He knew this marriage would mean that he'd need to share his wife's wealth with her sister and that sister's eventual children. From Gaunt's perspective, he was making sure his son would be financially secure and wouldn't have to wait around for an inheritance to become active in military and court life. Remember how much Edmund's lack of funds impacted his military and political prospects. Thomas, on the other hand, might have seen this as his older brother, who already had a lot, taking what he saw as rightfully his. I guess it's what happens when family reunions become matchmaking events. How did Mary feel about this? She was a woman in a time when who you married could make your life. So marrying an earl, who was the son of the most powerful duke in the kingdom, probably wasn't a bad choice. Her sister Eleanor apparently wasn't too pleased, since she didn't want to share funding either. Not long after Thomas's return to England, the Peasants' Revolt would begin. I can't find what Thomas was doing in the early part of the revolt, but he was active in suppressing the revolts and its leaders once the very top leaders had been taken into custody or executed. Thomas would oversee court cases in Essex, one of the areas that the revolt started. He was, of course, supported by a large military force. He would also assist with the suppression in Gloucester. At least 31 people were executed under his judicial supervision. Over the next seven years, Thomas and his wife Eleanor would have five children, Humphrey in 1381 or 82, Anne in 1383, Joan in 1384, Isabel in 1385 or 86, and Philippa in 1388. I wish they did do better record-keeping. Philippa died young. 
Yes, I am surprised by the lack of Edwards. If anyone knows why, let me know. But it's interesting that the names of Eleanor's parents, Joan and Humphrey, were used. Edward III's other three sons, who had sons, all used his name, while not all of those Edwards survived, of course. Thomas would finally be elevated to a dukedom in 1385, the Duke of Omal and the Duke of Gloucester. These are two separate dukedoms. His elevation occurred at the same time as his brother Edmund, who was created the Duke of York then. Despite his elevation, which he would have the young King Richard II to thank for, Thomas didn't feel the kingdom was being run in the best way possible. This is where I get to the meat of Thomas's story, the Lord's Appellant. I know it's come up a few times in other episodes, but it is Thomas's story more than any of his brothers. I'll quickly cover who the individual appellants are, and then go through a bit of the politics leading up to the appeal. So, who were these appellants? Initially, there were three. Thomas of Woodstock, our main character, Richard Fitzalan, the Earl of Arundel and of Surrey, and Thomas de Beecham, the Earl of Warwick. Beecham was the oldest of the initial three. In November of 1387, when the appeal was first raised, he was almost 50. He had accompanied John of Gaunt on campaign and was made a Knight of the Garter in 1373. He had attempted to reform Richard II's governments on multiple occasions before joining with Thomas and Fitzalan. Fitzalan was 42 and held the title of Admiral of the North and West, making him the senior naval officer in England. He was also brother of the future Archbishop of York and the current Bishop of Ely, Thomas Arundel, who would become the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1397. One important thing to note, Richard and Thomas Fitzalan Arundel were Thomas of Woodstock's uncles-in-law. Their sister Joan was his mother-in-law. They were also, not surprisingly, cousins, just like everyone else. In 1388, about a month after the initial appeal, Henry Bolingbroke, then the Earl of Derby, and Thomas Mowbray, then the Earl of Nottingham, joined them. Yes, you may have noticed an excess number of Thomases in this section. This has happened multiple times, especially in Philippa of Lancaster's episode, when it felt like every man surrounding her was named John. All the Thomases other than Thomas of Woodstock will be referred to by their surname or full name. Now that we know the players, what were they appealing for? First, they were appealing to the king, Richard II, as was their right, to address the behaviors of his favorites and to protect their rights as his leading nobles. If you remember back to John of Gaunt and Edmund of Langley's episodes, Richard II didn't have a regent he had been able to seal his own documents from the moment he became king. He did have a council who advised him and theoretically could help control the kingdom. But by the early 1380s, especially after the Peasants' Revolt in 1381, Richard, while only 14, tried to press his independent rule without the council. He recognized that Parliament still had a place, but he wanted to be the sole head of state, and he felt the council was unconstitutional. This wasn't a sudden quick overthrow of his council, but a slower process, and Richard had help from a few friends. 
these friends would be the focus of the appellant's complaints. In 1382, Richard was assisted by the first of these friends, Michael de la Pole, in negotiating his marriage to Anne of Bohemia. De la Pole would be appointed Richard's chancellor in 1383. While Anne would prove to be a popular queen, her marriage was financially negative to England and had little political capital. Anne brought her retinue with her, including a lady-in-waiting, Agnes de Lanscrona whom you may remember from Edmund's episode. Agnes would begin an affair with the closest of Richard's friends and the second individual the appellants brought issue with, Robert de Vere. In 1382, he was still married to Philippa de Cousy, a cousin of Richard II and Thomas's niece. De Vere would leave her in 1387 after beginning his affair with Agnes. I'm sure you'll all remember how insulted the royal family was by de Vere's behavior. The remaining favorites were Robert Tresselin, the Chief Justice, Nicholas Bembro, who had been the Lord Mayor of London in 1377 and again from 1383 to 85, and Alexander Neville, the Archbishop of York. And after this message, you'll hear more. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. Now to the setup. And yes, Thomas's oldest surviving brother is momentarily involved. In 1386, John of Gaunt leaves England to properly battle for the crown of Castile. Please see his episode and his daughter Philippa of Lancaster's episodes to find out how that goes. While he's gone, Richard II continued making changes and pushing for more control. As I mentioned in his episodes, John of Gaunt was almost a calming influence, even though he and his nephew may not have gotten along personally. Gaunt, while being accused of attempting to usurp his nephew, was truly loyal and at the same time able to negotiate with his family members who were leading magnets to help smooth over things with the young king. With Gaunt gone, this calming, thoughtful influence was removed. And this is what I at least think leads to the actual appeal. 
the appellants would likely have spoken to Gaunt first to try to solve things without approaching the king directly and publicly. This may have allowed Richard to save face and may have protected everyone involved. In February 1387, Richard and his household left Westminster for a tour of England to try to increase his popularity. Months earlier, he had asked Parliament for, well, more money through increased taxation. Parliament, called the Wonderful Parliament, its good was already taken and needing to one-up those who slapped down Gaunt, maybe, led by Thomas of Woodstock and Fitzalan, refused to accede to this request until De La Pole was removed as Chancellor. De La Pole was an unpopular Chancellor and had gained a great deal of wealth and power through his friendship with the King. In response, Richard II refused to attend Parliament and demanded the Commons visit him to negotiate. They, expecting punishment or jailing, refused and sent two lords, Thomas of Woodstock and the Bishop of Ely, Thomas Arundel, Richard Fitzalan's brother, who threatened to overthrow the king if he didn't come to Parliament to negotiate. Richard had been an active king, participating in all but one day of all of his parliaments until this time. After a bit of back and forth with his uncle and the bishop, he agreed to come to Westminster. As you can imagine, he was not impressed with his uncle's threats, but he would have been aware that continuing to ignore the summons of Parliament was political suicide. Remember, his great-grandfather, Edward II, had been usurped because of his unwillingness to appease his nobles and his poor treatment of his wife. While Richard II didn't have an heir who could be used as an easy pawn like Edward III had been, the man who could literally usurp him was the man threatening to do so, his uncle Thomas. Richard may have also realized that without Uncle John in the country, Thomas might be able to do it. After agreeing to attend Parliament, Richard, in an amazing move, elevated de Vere to Marquess of Dublin, the first creation of a Marquess in English history. This is a rank of nobility between an earl and duke. This further enraged Thomas and the other future appellants. In a rare piece of intelligent political maneuvering, Richard did remove de la Pole as chancellor in late October of 1386, replacing him with Thomas Arundel. The rest of the session was focused on reigning in Richard's power via a commission, kind of like the council he was trying to get rid of, but with a whole new name. This challenged tradition in the same way as Magna Carta or the provisions of Oxford, and Richard liked the tradition that royal prerogative was his right. Richard stated after Parliament was dissolved in November that he would basically ignore the commission, much like his grandfather, Edward III, ignored the changes the good Parliament made that he didn't like. During his progress through England from February to November 1387, Richard started trying to undo the magnificent Parliament's actions. He appointed de Vere Justice of Chester and got a legal ruling from the Chief Justice Robert Tresselin that legally overturned much of what Parliament had achieved and declared it unconstitutional. Richard probably thought things were going well until he returned to London. Upon the King's return, Thomas of Woodstock and his compatriots acted. Thomas, Fitzalan, and Beecham appealed to the king, accusing his favorites of treason. 
The king was not pleased, but didn't have the political capital to oppose these three leading lords, especially when they were joined a month later by Henry Bolingbroke and Thomas Mowbray. They wanted Richard's favorites impeached, and in a few cases, they asked for executions. These favorites were charged with treason between the 14th and 17th of November, 1387. Not surprisingly, the accused fled, since their previous protector, the king, didn't appear able to protect them. Robert de Vere led Richard's troops at the Battle of Radcot Bridge on the 19th of December, 1387, against Henry Bolingbroke. This was the battle that put the appellants in the lead, and Richard stuck agreeing to their demands. De Vere suffered three casualties, Bolingbroke none, but de Vere lost. He fled, leaving Richard II's forces without a leader. The next parliament, the Merciless Parliament, they were getting better at these names, ran from early February to June of 1388. It found all five of the king's favorites guilty, plus a few others, and ordered them arrested and or executed. Sir Robert Treslin was captured on the 19th of February, 1388, in Westminster, in Sanctuary, dragged out and executed, having been found guilty in absentia months earlier. Sir Nicholas Bembra was captured in Wales and held by Thomas of Woodstock until he was moved to the Tower in January of 1388. He was executed on the 20th of February that year. Alexander Neville was stripped of his bishopric and fled, requesting assistance from Pope Urban. He was offered the bishopric of St. Andrews, but the Scots refused to recognize this appointment due to not recognizing Pope Urban in Rome. Remember that whole Avignon thing. Instead, Neville would spend the rest of his life in France as a parish priest. I'm sure not a lowly parish priest. Michael de la Pole fled to Paris, where he died in 1389. De Vere was the most important of the five, to both the king as his favorite and supposed lover, and to the appellants because he was the king's favorite. After his humiliating loss, he fled to the continent. He stayed there, living the life of a noble in exile, until he was injured in a boar hunt in 1392, dying not long after. Richard II took his death poorly and much like his great-grandfather Edward II, held on to the resentment he felt towards those who had separated him from his favorite. Thomas of Woodstock was obviously aware that things could have ended badly for him and his compatriots. For every victory of the First Baron's War, or Isabella overthrowing Edward II, there is a Battle of Evesham, where Simon de Montfort is killed by Edward I's forces. But Thomas seemed to believe that his cause was just and worth the risk. Remember, good governance is the minimum we should expect from our leaders, and it was no different in that time. John of Gaunt returned from Spain in 1389, and as we know from his episode, helped Richard II begin to rule a bit more properly, and possibly fairly, or at least even-handedly. Though, don't forget, Gaunt would be out of the country at various times between 1389 and his death less than 10 years later, which means there were times Richard was unchecked. Also, Gaunt was loyal to Richard, and we've already seen it at his son's expense. So what happened to Thomas and the other appellants after the merciless parliament? In general, Thomas participated in English politics, 
But as his brother Gaunt aged and Richard obtained more control, the king began to seemingly make plans to do away with the appellates. There was a lull in fighting on the continent at this time. Richard II was distracted in 1394 when his wife Anne of Bohemia died at 28 of the plague. With no wars to fight and a treaty with France through his second marriage to Isabella of Valois, Richard II had a chance to likely plan his revenge against the appellants. You'll remember what happened to Henry Bolingbroke from John of Gaunt's episode. Bolingbroke did travel around Europe and into the Holy Land from 1390 to 1393, before returning and regaining, at least for the time, the king's trust. Richard Fitzalan would marry as his second wife, Philippa Mortimer, Leonel of Antwerp's granddaughter in 1385, making him even more related to everyone. In 1394, he would anger Richard II by showing up late to Anne of Bohemia's funeral. Richard actually hit him hard enough to draw blood, then pretended to make up and be friends again until July of 1397, when the king had him tried and attained for treason. He was executed on the 21st of September, 1397. Thomas Beecham would survive Richard's reign and support Henry Bolingbroke in his usurpation. He would be restored during Henry's reign to all his previously forfeited titles. The final two appellants, Thomas Mowbray and our main subject, Thomas of Woodstock, are very connected towards the ends of their life. As you may remember, after his aborted duel with Henry Bolingbroke, Mowbray was banished and died in Venice in September of 1399. His banishment was a bit surprising when you learn all he had done for the king in the final years of his life. While in 1387 to 89, he had stood with the other appellants. After this, he sided with the king and was instrumental in the minor fighting that was still occurring on the continent. He was popular in tournaments and had joined the king to fight in Ireland in 1394. He was actually one of the most powerful men in England for a short while. In 1391, he was appointed the captain of Calais. While he wasn't always in Calais, it's important to remember that he was theoretically in charge of it. Thomas of Woodstock was invited to dine with the king on the 10th of July, 1397, but he declined claiming poor health. Richard had also invited Thomas Beecham and Richard Fitzalan, but only Beecham attended. Fitzalan decided to stay inside his castle, though, as we know, this didn't protect him. The king had planned an impressive banquet, and the end, um, entertainment, was arresting Beecham. The king was upset that his uncle had ruined his chances for an even grander arrest, and decided to accompany an army to arrest Thomas personally. He expected his uncle to have an army with him, and was surprised to not find one. His uncle was, in fact, actually sick and bedridden. Overnight, from the 10th to the 11th of July, 1397, Thomas of Woodstock was arrested and transported to Calais. He was taken there because he would be under the king's control and out of John of Gaunt's judicial control. Gaunt was the Lord High Steward of England. Richard II wanted revenge against his youngest uncle, and he couldn't risk his most powerful uncle messing it up. 
While the details are not clear, at some point on or about the 8th or 9th of September 1397, Thomas of Woodstock was murdered, most likely smothered in a feather bed by Thomas Mowbray. Mowbray had been ordered to kill him weeks earlier, but had hesitated, and he had finally acted when Richard threatened him further and when it looked like Thomas may have had a chance of returning to England to stand trial. Mowbray was elevated to the title of Duke of Norfolk not long after Thomas's murder. By avoiding a trial, Richard II made sure he had his revenge. Thomas was only 42. His son Humphrey succeeded him to his earldom, but died in 1399 before his father's dukedom was restored. The dukedom of Buckingham would be restored to Thomas's grandson, Humphrey Stafford, the oldest surviving son of his oldest daughter, Anne. His wife, Eleanor, survived him by two years, dying just a month after his son. Now, before I leave Thomas's story, I know a few of you will be curious. Why didn't John of Gaunt step in to protect his youngest brother? He was powerful, and about half the court respected him. Richard II had Thomas's death publicly pronounced, claiming it was of natural causes. So Gaunt and Bolingbroke would have known. Helen Carr believes that Gaunt stayed loyal to the king to protect his son's inheritance and life. Remember, Bolingbroke had been one of the appellants. While he and Thomas had never been close, it's likely he was upset about his brother's murder and arrest, but needed to protect his son. I think, much like Edmund, I shouldn't judge if Thomas would have made a better king than the king that ruled instead. He wasn't meant to be king and he didn't really push for it. He used the suggestion that he usurp his nephew as a tool for political change to a king who wasn't listening to his council, parliament, his family, or even at times reason. Thomas's story is, I think, the saddest of Edward III's sons. He was born too late to have an impact on the early Hundred Years' War and died too early to have an impact on the middle years of the Hundred Years' War or the Wars of the Roses. Had he lived, he likely would have survived through much of Henry IV's reign and could have continued to have an impact. I'm really glad I took the time to read his story and learn about him. While not forgotten, he does seem to be the least well-known of Edward's sons. I have a soft spot for those who fight for better governance, so Thomas will probably always be okay in my book. I've enjoyed going through the sons of Edward III. I'm very grateful that I took the time to research each of them. John of Gaunt and the Black Prince do get a lot more attention than the other three, and I feel like educating myself on each of those has been worthwhile. I hope you've enjoyed these episodes. Next week, the claimants who smartly stepped aside for Henry Bolingbroke as he became Henry IV. I would like to thank my newest patron, Monica and all my patrons, Mark, David, Krista, Ashley, and Carrie. Please join us for early posts of my comics, ad-free episodes, and special episodes coming soon. Patrons, check the feed. Edward III should be up. I hope I'll see you all next week. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PastPod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at pastpod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash past pod.